Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hair on the back of your neck. Hi, I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. This episode, Lizzie Borden, Whacked. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. But did she? I mean, aside from the numbers being all out of whack, did she actually do the deed? That question has haunted and intrigued us for over 100 years. The legend of Lizzie Borden has been the subject of countless books, documentaries, several movies, and even a ballet, all trying to unravel the unresolved mystery. I confess, I've been a Lizzieophile ever since I moved within striking distance of Fall River, Massachusetts, home of those murders most foul. There are many aspects of the crime, the trial and acquittal, and Lizzie's life after her time in the spotlight that interests me to this day. I guess I come down on the side of those who say, she did it. But I still have questions. First among them, why? Many armchair sleuths each have their own motives to offer, but none seem strong enough to me to explain how an otherwise normal young woman with premeditation could commit such heinous and violent murders of her father and mother. She was not my mother. Don't call her that. Hateful, fat old thing. Sorry. Step mother. We probably all have questions we'd love to ask Lizzie herself if we could. For example, if you didn't do it, how did the murderer slip by you? How did he muffle the crash of your stepmother's 200-pound body? Why did you hear no sounds in that house with its paper-thin walls? How did you miss seeing the body of your stepmother on your many trips to your room? Where did the murderer hide during the hour and a half before your father came home? And where were you when your father was hacked to death? But I'm getting ahead of myself. For those Lizzie Borden neophytes out there, let's start at the beginning. On the morning of Thursday, August 4th, 1892, there occurred at Fall River, Massachusetts, the double axe murder of Andrew J. Borden and his wife, Abby. The murders were so violent, so heinous, that they could only have been committed by a madman. Mrs. Abby Borden, age 65, 
was axed down at nine o'clock that morning as she changed the pillow slips in the guest bedroom. According to the coroner's report, she suffered 21 axe blows about her person. An hour and a half later, Andrew Borden, 70 years of age, came home from his bank at mid-morning. He spoke with his youngest daughter, Lizzie, who was dressed to go out, and to Bridget, the Irish maid. He complained of not feeling well, and his daughter urged him to lie and rest on the horsehair sofa in the sitting room. Papa, home so early. Lie down, Papa. No, I don't know where Mrs. Borden is. Someone sent a note saying they were sick and to come. Maggie, Maggie, the latch is off the door. Has been all morning. Well, go to the garret and lie down if you don't feel well. It must have been the warmed-over mutton soup. Poor Papa's not well either, and I have felt peculiar all morning. I'm going out to the barn loft to hunt some tin to mend my bedroom screen. In the half-hour following, he also was murdered. His skull cleaved with an axe. At a quarter past eleven, his body was discovered by his daughter Lizzie. Oh, Maggie, do come quick! Someone has come in and killed father! So, if Lizzie did it, how? She had time to change clothing after butchering her stepmother and before her father came home, but how did she clean up after killing him? We are never at a loss for theories. One salacious version has Lizzie doing the deed in the nude. This theory is played out in the rather graphic movie Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, starring Christina Ritchie. Other experts believed she draped herself in her father's coat, which he removed before he lay down on the too-short sofa. The same coat was found neatly folded and placed under his mangled head as a pillow. How thoughtful! To be fair, there was testimony from experts at her trial that opined that the scenes, although not without ample gore, the many blows to each victim may not have necessarily spewed blood all over the perpetrator. A rather novel idea comes from author Rebecca F. Pittman in her book The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. She suggests that Lizzie wore two dresses that day and removed the outer bloody garment when she had finished with the murders. Rather than wait for the murders to be discovered, Lizzie stage-managed the reveal by calling from the back porch to neighbor Adelaide Churchill. Oh, Miss Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Lizzie played the role of the innocent with gusto, although not going overboard with emotion. She also planted the seed that she, Lizzie, had not seen her stepmother since Abby left to visit a sick friend. She presented to Miss Churchill her first concocted alibi when asked where she had been all morning of being in the barn while her father was butchered. When Bridget piped up and inquired nervously where Mrs. Borden might be, 
Lizzie demurred that she thought she heard Abby come home and go upstairs. This was strange. Lizzie had told everyone that Abby had gone out, but this was the first she'd mentioned her possible return. Adelaide, with Bridget closely in tow, slowly ascended the stairs, stopping on the seventh step. From there, she could clearly see under the guest bed and see the lump that was Mrs. Borden's corpse. Bridget slowly ventured into the room and viewed up close Abby Borden face down on the floor between the bed and the bureau. Her head and nape of her neck were a bloody nightmare. Her switch of false hair lay beside her. So now we had two victims, murdered hours apart. But by whom? Dr. Bowen, who had been summoned, soon arrived and was told of the two bodies. After seeing both victims, Dr. Bowen said, Physician that I am, and accustomed to all sorts of horrible sights, it sickened me. That morning, nearly the entire police force of Fall River was on a picnic at Rocky Point in Rhode Island and had to hustle back. Now, one must realize that investigative techniques at the turn of the 20th century were rudimentary at best. They sort of traipsed around the crime scene, for example, rummaging through a box of hatchets in the basement and passing them around to each other. In those days, they didn't bag, tag, and take care of items of evidence like they do today. can't imagine they didn't suspect Lizzie from the onset, but they were deferential just the same. It was noted by several during the early hours of the investigation that Lizzie was oddly composed, seeing as she had just discovered her father's butchered body sliding off the sofa in the sitting room. Lizzie was questioned by many in that late afternoon. Friends, police, Dr. Bowen, and other officials. Her story changed many times, including recounting of the timeline where she and Bridget had been all morning and what they were doing. Contradictions in her story came fast and furious. Had she changed her dress that morning? How was it that she was out of the house when her parents were hacked to pieces? Had she really been in the barn loft on one of the hottest days in the memory of Fall River, hunting for tin to mend a screen? No screens needed mending. No, wait, she was eating a pear in the yard. For several hours? Bridget, the only other person in the house besides the murderer, was washing windows. So, the murderer had to slip in and negotiate the rabbit warren of connecting rooms, avoiding being seen by Bridget? Neat trick. But where did he lie in wait for two hours until Andrew came home? And more to the point, why? In the early hours and days after the crime, finding motive and opportunity for a killer who was a stranger to the Bordens was harder and harder to find. 
It also came out during the trial that Abby had to know her murderer, since it was clear from her location in the room her assailant could not have snuck up upon her, and the first blow of the hatchet was delivered as she faced the killer. Fun fact, the bodies remained in the house after the murders where they underwent rudimentary autopsies and then waited for the undertaker to place them in coffins. Abby was autopsied in the dining room and Andrew in the parlor where he was butchered. Lizzie spent the night in her room while Andrew and Abby lay downstairs in repose. The coffins were placed end-to-end in the sitting room for the funeral. Andrew's head was turned to hide the terrible wounds, the eye severed, dangling from its socket. Lizzie bent down and kissed him on his unspoiled side. She wore blue. On his finger was the ring Lizzie had given him years ago. No, Papa. I don't want to exchange rings with any of my classmates. I meant it for you. You wear my ring. Not on your watch chain, on your little finger, next to the wedding ring she gave you. You must wear it always, Papa, for me. Another fun fact. At the gravesite after the funeral, before the coffins could be lowered into the ground, The bodies were taken to a vault in the cemetery, and the heads were removed for further examination. The first legal proceeding in Lizzie's case was an inquest. She testified of her own free will, without the benefit of counsel. Once again, Lizzie couldn't keep her story straight. Now, some slack might be cut, seeing as she by then was on a good dose of morphine to calm her. The questioning often became circular, even when trying to get a simple answer out of Lizzie. Take, for example, the vocabulary lesson on the word cordial. You have been on pleasant terms with your stepmother since then? Yes, sir. Cordial? It depends upon one's idea of cordiality, perhaps. According to your idea of cordiality? We were friendly. Very friendly. Cordial. According to your idea of cordiality. Quite so. What do you mean by quite so? Quite cordial. I do not mean the dearest of friends in the world, but very kindly feelings and pleasant. I do not know how to answer you any better than that. I always thought cordial was a sweet liqueur served in a frou-frou glass. Oh, well. The prosecutor did press her on information that she had tried to purchase poison the day before the murders at a local druggist. She denied it. Luckily for Lizzie, that tidbit and most of her testimony from the inquest was barred from the trial since she did not have benefit of counsel. All the same, she ultimately was charged by a grand jury and was bound over for trial and spent 10 months in jail waiting for that trial to commence. 
Although we don't know a great deal about her time in the new Bedford pokey, except for a rather unpleasant encounter with her sister Emma, Lizzie did write several letters to her friends while she was incarcerated. My dear Annie, the wind is blowing outside, a gale but never a blast inside. Everything is as calm and placid as a summer sea, even to the large white and yellow cat who is lying under the radiator, as sound asleep as if he was dead. He is the quietest boy I ever saw, but has lots of company for me. His name is Daisy. No, my dear, do not send me a tea kettle. I have no place for it but under the bed. You are very kind to think of it, though. I am awfully blue indeed. The skies are nowhere. I wonder if you know an Eleanor Huntington. Such a person from Boston wrote to me a short time ago. Why do you tell me to keep up courage a little while longer? My counsel gives me no hopes of anything soon, or ever, of an acquittal. Your dreams are too rosy, for they must know. Does Kenneth like his school? Do be as careful as you can, too, of scarlet fever, as if I need warn you. Ella was here last week. Are you to visit the World's Fair? Yours with love. L.A.B. When the long-awaited date for the trial came, it was indeed the hottest ticket in Fall River. Julian Ralph of the New York Sun wrote on the opening day of the trial, She is either the most injured of innocents or the blackest of monsters. She either hacked her father and stepmother to pieces with the furious brutality of the ogre in Poe's story of the Rue Morgue, or else some other person did it, and she suffers the double torture of losing her parents and being wrongfully accused of the crime. We will delve into the trial in a later episode, but let me take a moment to share a funny story. In an unexpected moment of gallows humor, the decapitated heads of Andrew and Abby made an appearance early in the prosecution's case. The skulls were rendered of flesh and quite clean. Dr. Dolan's son claimed he used lobster pots in the family home for the grisly procedure. The courtroom was aghast, and Lizzie Borden, the ever sphinx of coolness, reportedly swooned. Later in the trial, plaster casts were substituted for the actual skulls, but at one point Andrew's actual skull made a return appearance. At one point, it was put on a stack of law books. Reporter Elizabeth Jordan wrote of the moment, The old man's jaw sagged back and forth in a grisly suggestion of speech. Spectators caught their breath and then exhaled it in a gasp that swept the courtroom like a great sigh. Was he trying to testify? Julian Ralph, another journalist, scribbled a question to Jordan. If the old man awakened by the first blow saw his murderer, would he tell us who it was? If he saw it was his daughter, would he say so? Jordan replied in a note, no, not if he was a good man. 
The skulls were used in almost endless demonstration in an attempt to prove that the handleless hatchet that they had retrieved from the Borden basement was indeed the murder weapon. Several times they took this handleless hatchet and tried to fit it into the holes in the skulls of both Abby and Andrew. In the first use of the adage, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Well, whether this hoodoo hatchet, as it became known, was indeed the murder weapon, is still disputed to this day. Lizzie did not testify at her trial. She only spoke once when asked to give her plea to the charge of capital murder. I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. It did not escape Lizzie that should she be found guilty, she would have been executed by hanging. Most observers agreed that the evidence against Lizzie was very strong, although it was circumstantial. There were no eyewitnesses. The prosecution hammered on Lizzie's famous dislike of her mother. She was not my mother. Don't call her that. Hateful, fat old thing. To pile on, they had agreed to the mix. Andrew was very wealthy. If he died before Abby, absent a will, she would get his entire estate and Emma and Lizzie would get nothing. And no will was ever found. The prosecution was desperate to find a will. They were not successful. So, as a result, Emma and Lizzie got it all. Not a bad motive for parricide. Lizzie's trial lasted about two weeks, and at the end of it, her defense summed up the case for her innocence. Gentlemen of the jury with unmarried daughters, Behold the prisoner. There is no blood upon her, and blood speaks out, though it is voiceless. Think of it. Think of it for an instant. To find her guilty, you must believe her a fiend. Does she look it? Take care of her as you have, and give us promptly your verdict of not guilty, that she may go home and be Lizzie Andrew Borden in that blood-stained and wrecked house where she has lived for so many years. And in one hour, the verdict came in and Lizzie was voted not guilty. Innocent. It's the same thing. Emma and Lizzie returned to that blood-stained house on 2nd Street to live, but not for long. Lizzie bought a big house on French Street, tricked it out for entertaining, and named it Maplecroft. She also renamed herself Lizbeth Andrew Borden. Emma stayed with her for many years, until Lizzie's soirees with actors from Boston became too much, and she moved out. Lizzie died at the age of 67, on June 1st, 1927, Emma followed ten days later. Did she ever suspect Lizzie did it? 
Did Lizzie ever admit it to Emma? Those questions remain unanswered to this day. Last fun fact. Lizzie was not at her own funeral, but she did leave detailed instructions in her will as to how her funeral should be handled. And after the laying out, the coffin is to be closed and draped in black, and I will wear black, and no flowers, no service, and the coffin shall be taken to the cemetery at night, the same night, and well after midnight, and it shall be lowered into the grave by negroes, dressed in black, and wearing black gloves, and no one is to attend. Well, there you have it. The premiere episode of Murder Most Foul. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Lizzie Borden players, Stephen Hug, Ben Christie, Paul Nolette, and Rebecca Cunha Christie as Lizzie Borden. You can find us on our webpage, which is Murder Most Foul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com, and also on Facebook, Murder Most Foul. So, until we meet again, ciao!